0: Welcome to Talking Biotech, a podcast brought to you by Collabra, a collaborative electronic laboratory notebook that brings all of your data together in one shared space. I'm Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, keynote speaker, and strategic communication coach. My passion is to introduce you to the most exciting breakthroughs in new technology because the future of medicine, agriculture, and conservation is hopeful and exciting. On this weekly podcast, we talk to the experts in science learning about new technologies that can help people and the planet. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now one thing we all have in common whether you're a man or a woman, a sea urchin or a great blue whale is aging. The progression of time causes changes in our physiology, our ability to move, our strength, most of all, susceptibility to various diseases and disorders. Now, over the last three decades or so, genes have been identified in model systems that seem to play a role in the process of animal senescence. And with an understanding of these mechanical underpinnings of aging, we gain the potential to push back with lifestyle modification and potentially even pharmacological therapeutic interventions. So take a pill, slow the aging process. But time is moving fast. And a pathway to solutions in humans might take seemingly forever, especially for those of us who are on the backside of that curve. <laughs> um, if we've lived for more than half a century, the cures can't come fast enough. So what other ways might we attack this problem that comes from too many trips around the sun? Today's guest is Celine Hollywa. She's the CEO of Loyal. So welcome to the podcast, Celine.
1: Hi, great to be here. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is really cool. I'm really glad you're here, and I really think this is a fun topic for lots of reasons. So before we kind of get too much into what your company does and how you do it, can you just start out with very simple terms? What is this thing called aging?
1: <laughs> That's actually a very uh, contentious question. Um, so maybe I'll say how I think about aging and the the aging problem. Um, so the best metaphor that I've come up with Uh, which it's it's suboptimal because I don't have any car expertise, but is, so rubber is used in various parts of your car and has the same physical properties, generally speaking, asterisk, asterisk, uh, no matter where it is. And it ages over time in relatively the same way. But the kind of end state disease that you get, um, depending where that rubber is, differs significantly where it is. So if it's in the engine, it might be a gasket leak. If it's in the tire, it might be your tire cracking. And so the way you treat those end stage diseases, changing the tire, changing um, the valve, are very different. But there's a preventative mechanism or a way to treat the aging of the car, which would be, for example, creating a rubber that's more resilient to heat and stress. So that would extend the all cause health span of the car and delay diseases, indications uh, that come uh, later in in the life of the car due to degeneration of the rubber in those places. So really the way I think about aging is it's, um, actually, I think, uh, K- Matt Kaberline tweeted this out recently. It's kind of like the the precursor malady of all maladies insofar that it underlies very phenotypically, uh, genotypically, et cetera, different diseases, these are like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, cancers, osteoarthritis, dementia, all of these disorders. But the underlying mechanism is the way by which we pathologically age over time. What are the things that go wrong in our bodies, that break down our bodies over time, that over decades lead to the age-related diseases that we then treat independently? Mm-hmm. The, the aging field, or at least the aging field as I see it, is trying to treat the way by which we age over time to be a multimodal, uh, multi-causal drug that treats multiple age-related diseases at the same time or prevents them or dampens them diseases that are today not considered to be biologically similar at all.
0: Yeah. And so let me just show you my my definition, maybe how I think about it, just because I think it's germane to your topic. And I, like I always think of it as a normal part of development, that when you look at humans or mice or dogs or whatever, they all kind of go through the same progression of being a little pink wormy thing to kind of upright, to kind of gradually through these different phases through an adolescence, through an adulthood, and eventually into the senescence and that all of this is dependent upon specific gene expression, met- metabolism, maybe epigenetic phenomena, with that progression into a senescent phase, you kind of lift a gate where all of these other processes, like you mentioned, these different disease states now become more possible. And, and, and does that seem to be okay too?
1: Again, it is a very contentious topic. I think the way I would think about it, another way I think about it is like- Deviation from optimal biological function, right? So, can we redefine what a disease, quote unquote, is? So, um, the other example I always use, um, and I really need to come up with less embarrassing examples, is that, you know, when I was in college and I was 20 or 21 or whatever, and I would go out and drink, uh, I'd get up for class the next day at 8 a.m. and, you know, be fine. I actually would brag about how I never got hangovers. Uh, Now I have one glass of wine at like some cringy VC networking event and I feel it for two days later. Um, and I don't have a disease. I don't have you know, a liver me- uh, uh, metabolism disorder. I don't have anything like that, but I've lost a degree of resiliency to the toxin that is alcohol, presumably due to, to age, right? And so it's really that deviation. Um, also things like I need to sleep eight hours a night now. Like that's what I really think it, where a disease is going, um, but what's necessary there is to be able to quantify that. And that's actually a very hard problem.
0: Okay. So, so that's good that we've kind of set up a couple different ways of thinking about what this aging process is. So Loyal, your company works primarily in what organism?
1: Uh, Dogs, (laughs) as you might've guessed by the name.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really, it's really cool. I was really happy to see that. And, And I really appreciate your website. It's really well done. So you're working on dogs and, you know, humans live to 80, you know, dogs, if you're lucky, you get one that makes it to 10 or 15, depending on whether it's a big dog or a little dog, all that stuff, a breed. You know, you look at a mouse it lives a year if it's lucky, right? So these are all mammals. We all have similar developmental progressions. What is it about the clock in each one of those organisms? And it, I guess it seems to be related to size because like a whale lives longer than us. So what is it about the clock and size and how do these things interrelate?
1: Yeah, well, so one of the reasons I became, I'm a huge animal lover, to be clear. I grew up with 15 cats, three dogs. We used to rescue uh, birds as broken rings, like the, the whole the whole thing, right? Um, but I, I became interested in dogs actually because there is a switch in the size lifespan dimorphism. Um, so the bigger a dog is, on average, the shorter their lifespan. So a Great Dane might live seven to nine years, a Chihuahua might live you know 16 to 18 and it's actually a linear inverse relationship between the weight of a dog and their uh expected median lifespan and that's really interesting because as you just mentioned you don't really see that in other organisms generally speaking a bigger an organism is the longer their lifespan is um and we i became interested in dogs in addition for other reasons i'm sure we'll talk about because it seems like we might have given big dogs accidentally an accelerated aging disorder um when we were breeding for for uh a size, right? So when we selectively bred dogs for the phenotypes that we wanted, you know, let's say friendly in terms of golden retrievers or curly hair or really big and you know, for great Danes, uh people didn't understand genetics. So they're just inbred and they would breed breed, you know, sons to daughters and You know, just cross lines like crazy, which was very effective in getting the phenotypes they wanted very quickly in a couple of generations, um, but was very ineffective in creating um, robust uh, lines of dogs that didn't have negative consequences of this inbreeding. So most breeds of dogs have, you know, some disease or diseases that are associated with them, and it's due to its inbreeding or thought to be due to this inbreeding. So, yeah, dogs have this really interesting size, lifespan, dimorphism. To an extreme level that we don't see in any other breed or species, um, which I think can teach us a lot about pathological aging and and the lack thereof.
0: Yeah, it seems like somebody, I'm I'm almost certain, I've read stuff that really talks about that dimorphism. And if people looked at things like gene expression or, you know, methylation state, epigenetic state between small dogs and big dogs to get any hints as to why they might age a little faster?
1: Well, that's what we're trying to target with one of our uh, drug programs. But yeah, we are also, so we're running a, 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 a community-driven science program called X Thousand Dogs, which is um, sequencing um, dogs of all sizes, all breeds, uh, which is looking at epigenetics. And so for context, for those who might not know what epigenetics is, you have your genome, which generally speaking is static uh, over your lifespan. Um, and it's generally speaking, same from cell to cell. Um, epigenetics can be thought of as the 3D structure of that genome. So how is it folded over? And the folding over in the structure impacts the function, right? So a- genes that are activated or deactivated or patho- pathologically active or pathologically deactive. Um, and it's thought to be quite relevant um, and perhaps, you know, predictable to aging. So we don't have any results yet on the size uh lifespan dimorphism on that variable um yet, but it's definitely something we're looking at.
0: Yeah, maybe I should ask now I kind of would hate to ask at the end, is this kind of citizen science thing still open and available?
1: Yeah. So we are um we're not currently sending out kits, although we will likely reopen that portion of the study. But the other really key part actually is the survey questions. Um so we ask people for photos of their dogs over the over their lifespan and We ask people for information on how their dog's activity levels change in time and age. And it's actually incredibly, incredibly valuable for, uh, again, this problem of quantifying the aging process in a complex species. So the survey portion is 100% open. If you want to participate, you can just go to loyalfordogs.com and click on X-1000. And we'd love to have you. We've had um, over 130,000 survey questions answered so far by pet parents, which is pretty cool.
0: That's cool. I got four dogs. And they range from... Yeah, they change from Chihu- they range from Chihuahua to Great Pyrenees.
1: That's uh, quite the span.
0: It's in, <laughs> size is inversely proportional to how long I want them to live. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Great Pyrenees; they're well, such sweet totally
1: dogs. Uh, uh, understanding English. We'll work on that next.
0: Well, the the, um, the big dogs are livestock guardians, and they they take good care of things out here on the farm. And, uh, but they're, you know, sweetest damn dogs. And I just, and they're so, such good workers, but it really ties in with the, that maybe the next question. How much of this is related to the total number of calories they consume?
1: Well, so that's interesting. The only, as I'm sure, you know, one of the, the first mechanisms, interventions to show lifespan extension was in the 1930s in rats and they showed caloric restriction extends rat lifespan. And it's been you know, replicated over and over again. Um, in various model organisms, um nothing is you know concrete in biology. We don't know if it's nutrition based or there are some theories that it was about restricting a certain amino acid. But you know, generally speaking, we can say with relative uh, certainty that clerk restriction generally speaking, extends lifespan. sorry I'm putting a lot of you know asterisks in my sentences, like like any good scientist, I guess. um and it's also the only intervention that, as far as I know, um, hasn't a full uh, finished study was the intention of looking at lifespan and healthspan in dogs. So um, Purina actually in the late nineties ran a clinical study um, where they did 25% caloric restriction in Labradors. um, And they showed an approximately two year lifespan extension in these dogs. And these are already long lived dogs. Um, Showed an approximately two year lifespan extension in these dogs and a non-statistically significant, but pretty strong signal Um, two-year delay in the incidence of osteoarthritis and um, certain forms of cancer. And I I bring that up, that latter part is really important because osteoarthritis and cancer mechanistically are, you know, about as different as they come. But under this aging theory, they're both driven by aging. They're both age-associated diseases. And to show even a non-statistically significant delay in those diseases in those dogs who also had lifespan extension is a really cool you know, granted one study, um, but one study by a reputable partner um, work showing that maybe this does translate out to a complex species like the like the dog. Um, and mechanisms are something that we're looking at for some of our drug programs too. We won't clear restrict dogs, but you know, and nobody wants to do that.
0: Well, I I, I think that the data are pretty good on, on that where I've seen it over the years in a number of different organisms, and it's pretty compelling. And I just was thinking in terms of, you know, chihuahua eats a little bit, you know, whatever how many calories a day it seems like the great pyrenees eat eat you know 10 times what the chihuahua eats and the chihuahua is going to make it a long time the great pyrenees isn't is it just a question of how much coal you throw in the furnace and that the furnace is the same you know something yeah but this is just me spitballing ideas here i just think it's so cool you're talking about um lifespan and health span and what's the difference
1: yeah so so if you say lifespan extension, you actually are implying healthspan extension. So lifespan is just the quantitative numbers of years lived. Um, Healthspan is the quality of those years um, and the quantification of it. Lifespan is just the quantitative numbers of years lived. So six or seven years of age. Uh, Healthspan is the quantification of the quality of life of those years. And so it's actually, from what we know, pretty damn difficult to extend lifespan, but not extend healthspan. So it's hard to take an old decrepit dog and drag out those old decrepit ears like zombie dogs. Um, but it is the first thing that people think of because it is how late stage disease um, therapeutics often work. That's how, you know, a cancer, th- certain cancer therapeutics, like a chemotherapeutic isn't, you know, known for improving quality of life. It's really more about kind of giving the patient more time. And so the drugs that we're developing are specifically intended, and we really emphasize this to pet parents, to extend health span, So the number of quality years they have with their pet. Um, so it's not just the years as a pet, but it's like how many years can Fido go and, you know, run around at the at the park?
0: Yeah, so this is where your company really starts to intervene into the process. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Celine Hollywa. She's the CEO of Loyal. And we'll be back with Collabro's Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Collabora, featuring their electronic laboratory notebooks. One of the challenges of being a laboratory PI is that when working with diverse scientists, you find a diversity of record-keeping preferences. And this can make long-term curation of data a real challenge. Looking back a few years, I always wonder, where was that plasmid clone and how was it made? Uh, Where was that weird reagent purchased? Where are those data from the first two replicates that would have made a great final figure for that manuscript? We've all been there. It's frustrating. It slows progress and can lead to valuable wasted time and reagents. Electronic laboratory notebooks are a solution. And Collabora's products help your team chronicle their discovery together in one shared space. Learn more at collabra.app. That's C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we're talking with Celine Hollywa. She's the CEO of Loyal, which can be found at loyalfordogs.com. Is that Loyal, F-O-R, or the number four? Uh, F-O-R. Okay. <laughs> I always want to make sure. The bottom line is, is that th- this is really exciting work because you're looking at this question of longevity, which is something we all worry about, and health span and lifespan as either we age or our parents age or whatever, we're looking at this all the time. and The question now is, uh, what can we learn from dogs then possibly translate that to humans? And that's been really kind of where I see from your website where your company is going. So let's talk a little bit about that. There's been a lot of work that talks about uh, methylation and epigenetic markers, all of these things we've discussed on the podcast before that really show similarities between humans and dogs. And what does this tell us about potential translation of therapeutics that you may design for dogs? to solve problems in other mammals.
1: Yeah. So we are committed to bringing forward our drug programs for uh, pet parents um, for a number of reasons. Um, we're very mission aligned. Um, there's an obscene amount of dog and cat people on this team. And if we ever didn't do that, I think um, I would be quickly voted out <laughs> of, the, of the camp. Um, but what we're really excited about is while we're developing these drug programs for pets and pet parents what can we learn about translational aging, about aging in a complex species that's more broadly relevant um, to understanding how human age humans age over time too? Um, so we do a lot of extra, I would say parallel work that allows us to um, really, again, this problem of quantifying aging, that's really actually a huge part of it, right? There's actually a lot of drug targets and mechanisms and Whatnot that have shown lifespan extension, health span extension, and complex in, in mice and other species. What we really need to understand is how do you actually quantify, how do you translate an aging program, right? How do you quantify aging? How do you show a reduction in mortality risk? Um, how do you show an improvement in health span robustly? And that's something that we spend a lot of, a lot of time on. Um, and I think in the long term, we are absolutely wanting to develop uh, drug programs that are. For humans Um, and maybe cats too i get a lot of questions about cats cats have a really long lifespan so it's a little bit harder um and if you ever try to give a cat a pill like good luck you know might shorten the lifespan of the owner but um that is you know maybe maybe one day
0: i would support programs to shorten the lifespan of cats
1: Don't let people hear you say that.
0: (laughs) I know. There's a lot of cat people that just unsubscribed, but um, I've never gotten along much with cats. I'm a dog guy. I love dogs. Uh, I guess that's the other big question. What are some of the um, biological markers, like some of the diseases or states that happen to dogs as they age that are extremely common and maybe variable between species that make it a basis for something to study?
1: Yeah, so dogs are interesting insofar that they develop approximately um, the same age-related diseases at approximately the same time in their lifespan as humans do. Again, um, uh, made uh, scaled for the the lifespan duration. The one big exception being cardiac disease, uh, just because I mean we don't really know why, but my my guess is just because you know certain forms of cardiac disease are very environmentally driven in terms of diet and exercise, in which dogs don't generally have those issues. They don't you know go to McDonald's and sit on the couch all day. Um, that means that. If something works, for example, in doggy dementia, which is a you know a real indication, uh, or doggy cancer, of which is the primary driver of dog death um, with age, it's not a one to one to people. To be clear, I don't think it's one to one to people, even in people, right? But it's a because that disease has developed over time. It's not an induced disease, like we so often see in mice. Um, it's we learn a lot more about the mechanisms that may or not may not be relevant to these diseases that are incredibly relevant to people. Uh, And it's really important, again, because these diseases fundamentally take time. So because we're going to be following these dogs for years, because they're going to be in clinical studies with us, and they're going to be hopefully on the drug product, hopefully, you know, for as a preventative mechanism for their dog's aging, that gives us the opportunity to learn things about you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dogs as they age or don't age um, or age slower um, in a way that just wouldn't be possible even at a CRO, right? It wouldn't be possible in a preclinical research facility. It's really only possible at the scale that you get when you're in the clinic um, in companion dogs. Well,
0: this is the other part of this, to my mind, is that dogs are a reasonably recent species. And these are, you know, pretty recent vintage of genetics that separate them from their canine ancestors. And even within that, we have all of this species, not speciation, but breediation, (laughs) you have so many different breeds that have been, uh, some of them very, even very recent. And how much is that helpful or a hindrance to the kind of work you do? It's
1: a little bit of both. Um, so the way to think about breeds is kind of like a founder population. Um, so in case you don't know what a founder population is and, you know, in, in humans, there's some, you know, for example, like island populations. Where they were uh, off of, you know, a very small amount of humans, then created the population that's there today. So you might have an extreme overrepresentation of certain genes that might be positive or negative, certain phenotypes of genotypes that might be positive or negative that you don't see in a general population. And that's completely true for for dogs. And so it's kind of both, right? Like it's um, like uh, let's take the example of golden retrievers. Uh, goldens have Two forms of cancer that are pretty highly represented in the breed that are more highly represented there than there are in other um, other uh, breeds of dogs, you know, to treat those dogs uh, effectively for those cancers, you probably need to develop a therapeutic that takes into account the driving genetics of the, the, the that's causing them specifically to get that cancer, but it might also be relevant to understanding those cancers in a more broad population. So like, for example, there's some genetically associated dementias and like early early onset Parkinson's and curing early onset Parkinson's probably won't cure um, uh, uh, stochastic Parkinson's, but it will give us some information about it. And it's kind of a nice like thumb hold into or toe hold into a very, very complex disease.
0: Wow, so dogs get Parkinson's disease.
1: Uh, there's evidence that they get some of the changes that you see in um, in, in the CNS that's associated with Parkinson's, yeah.
0: Yeah, so changes in dopaminer- dopaminergic, <laughs> I never can say that, um, parts of the brain then. So they're seeing, yeah. okay, well, that's interesting. I never knew that. Like
1: uh, and things like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, okay. So I guess the other interesting thought on this is, have you found any associated genes or gene variants in all of the genomic studies here that seem to associate with longevity or predisposition to disease in dogs?
1: Yeah, so we haven't shared any of the data publicly yet. uh, But provisionally, uh, we've seen, so for example, with the the golden retriever example, we have provisionally, provisionally, um, shown a provisional (laughs) ability to uh, be able to predict relatively accurately uh, if a golden is going to develop that cancer, um, before they have developed it. Um, we haven't gone so deep into understanding what exactly are our models, you know, printing that off of, but at least it's a, a broadly applicable. And then with X-thousand, we're still, um, we got thousands of saliva swaps. So we're still su- sequencing them. Um, but that's exactly what we're looking for are those drivers that are associated. Really the key thing with aging. though, is you need longitudinal data sets. You need data sets over time, and you need to see the progression of aging in that organism. So kind of a, we've done cross-sectional studies. We did a 500 dog um, health span study, which is large to small, old and young dogs. And that's definitely interesting. But I think what we're really, like the like the best data sets are the same dog over time. Um, ideally, multiples of that dog breed, of that dog similar environment. And then some that age faster, some that age slower, some that get cancer, some that don't cancer. Because then you can start to differentiate between what's causing that or hypothesize what's causing
0: that. Yeah, you could start 78 and me.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I mean, people are doing that.
0: <laughs> oh, they are doing that. Oh, that's good. I guess the big the drive of your company ultimately is to identify different therapeutic compounds that may be able to affect some of these mechanisms that are related either to, I guess, aging or age-related disease onset, or maybe you could just speak to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, so... Exactly. We want to, we want to prove that you can develop a drug, um, for aging and that it doesn't have to be, you know, so most human, every human, uh, potentially, uh, aging company is, you know, developing it not for aging, which makes sense, right? It, it would take a really long time to show, um, a reduction in biological aging in a human, um, versus we can see that relatively short period of time in dogs. But the risk of developing, you know, a broad cause aging drug for a specific indication is it just increases the rate of false or the the risk of false fails. Um, So, for example, if a drug doesn't, if a, uh, let's say a drug is targeting, I mean, one of the canonical uh, unfortunate examples is, you know, Unity, uh, which is incredibly mission motivated, great team. They are developing um, senescence, uh, senolytics, so drugs that target senescent cells, cells we talked earlier to zombie cells. Um, but because they can't go for broad cause aging for all suit of reasons, um, their first clinical study at least is in osteoarthritis. But then there's at least a doubling in the risk there, right? Because it's not only does the drug work, is it at the right dose, is it, you know, targeting senolytic cells, is it not killing other cells, um, is it safe, da-da-da-da-da. But it's also is this specific disease that we chose driven by senescence? And is this specific disease that we chose? reverted or clinic having a clinically meaningful change if we reduce um the senescent cell burden are we reducing the senescent cell burden often enough to have a clinically meaningful change is a dose sufficient for osteoarthritis specifically there's just all these other variables it can we even quantify you know pain is actually a pretty like pain in the ass thing to quantify um for a clinical study And so there's all these other variables that actually make it really really hard um, versus things like lifespan, lifespan is actually an easy endpoint. Like it's a long endpoint, but it's an e- it's binary, right? <laughs> you can't really like, <laughs> you know, screw up a, a form on like, what's your pain scale today? And like, I'm in a bad mood. So my pain scale is like up two points or whatever. Um, and so it's really about increasing the probability of success of bringing forward a drug for aging.
0: And when you're looking at different drugs, are you mostly focusing on compounds that have already been approved for use in animals or even, you know, other humans, whatever, uh, that have already been approved so that you can test for their effect on in other indications, or are these new compounds that are being discovered?
1: Um, so we're not doing small molecule discovery at the moment. Uh, we're primarily focusing on compounds where the safety profile is known. The reason being because one of our core theories is that, um, and I don't think it's a particularly controversial take, is that an aging drug has to be baseline neutral and then hopefully positive. Like it hopefully helps, right? But we cannot, we're not ethically uh, justified, nor is the regulatory environment going to be amenable to the idea of a drug that is developed for, uh, you know, a a preventive mechanism that then, you know, makes the person sick. In six months, but like maybe prevents a disease they may or may not gotten in twenty years from now, right? So safety is super important. It's like vaccines are another thing. The safety profile necessary for any vaccine is way higher than a, you know, even a, a like a pain medication. Um, so safety profile has been super important to us. Um, and even with some of the proprietary drugs we're working for, with now it's drugs that the mechanisms like the on-target, uh, safety, the chemical class safety, it's all well known. It's also because you know if the dog eats the entire jar of drug, uh, we don't want the dog to die, right? Like, maybe they can have some diarrhea, the pet parent can be annoyed, and next time they'll put it up higher. Uh, but we don't want, you know, severe adverse events to be basically possible with this drug unless they do something extreme.
0: So when you're talking about using um, already approved and things that are known to have good toler tolerance already, are you trying to uh, match those with you know, potential targets that you're coming up with through genomic tests or how do you make that marriage between the test and the drug?
1: Yeah. So it's a lot of we have a biological hypotheses of what we think are relatively speaking, um low hanging fruits uh for treating aging in dogs. And then we pick programs and develop programs around that. And we have a multitude of programs. Uh, our sequencing work that we're doing now is, uh, so we've been working on drugs for almost three years now, God, uh, and our sequencing work is relatively novel. Um, you know, we started it this year. So that work hasn't driven into the selection of the drug programs that we have currently LOI1 and LOI2, um, but inevitably indubitably will play into our future programs.
0: And there's been a lot of work done in things as simple as worms, you know, like C. elegans, where they've identified genes directly associated with lifespan. And have any of those really started to translate to things like
1: dogs? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, C elegans—I is, I literally have a C elegans tattooed on my arm um, and a black six mask. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, C elegans—that was the—it's actually one of the the first. I'm sure you know this, but like one of the first studies that really gave a lot of uh, conviction that you could have a pharmaceutical intervention that's you know extending health span and lifespan, because of course, a clinical study showing. Um, The knocking out of the growth hormone IGF-1 orthologs showing a, you know, two to four X lifespan extension in C. elegans. So basically the idea that like one single intervention is sufficient to extend lifespan and healthspan um, in a not that complex species, but, you know, definitely not like a cell uh, thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much preclinical work that's been done. um, And I I think a lot of it's going to be relevant to dogs and people. I mean, it's going to have a fail rate similar to, you know, what any anything. Right. Uh, But the problem is nothing gets translated out or much less gets translated out because it's not really an aging industry currently. And so that's really kind of where the the focus is now for us.
0: Well, one of the benefits that I see of your approach is that everybody loves petting a puppy and, you know, loves a dog. And do you think that this has broader implications in terms of recruiting people into the interest of aging and aging science?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, one of the kind of challenges of the aging field has been um, that at least the old garden field really kind of started with a super contrarian narrative around immortality and uh, life uh, lifespan escape velocity and thousand year lifespans and all of these things that we may or may not get, but are, you know, definitely controversial, um, which at least for the kind of average American the average individual has left a little bit of a bad taste. Um, and it's, you know, the, it it brings up a lot of questions and ideas of what happens to socioeconomic equality in a world where the rich live longer and all of these things um versus it's not controversial to extend dog lifespan right um even cat people love the idea of our pets living you know longer healthier lives everyone thinks pets deserve the best quality of life we can give them everybody thinks pets should be happy i mean they're 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 like our furry children in many ways and so it's really kind of this less threatening way to introduce the ideas around how do you develop a new medicine what is biotech what is uh pharma um how does it impact your family and potentially help your family in a way that's way less stigmatized politicized um and really kind of without a lot of the challenges and um you know negativity that we sometimes see on the the human side Um, it also means Uh. our advertisements and our brands are you know really good i mean billboards with dogs you can't get better than that
0: no i you know what you are exactly right i think when you talk about pharmaceuticals and that kind of stuff people go oh those scumbags are the big pharma um if you tell people you're going to help their dog live longer <laughs> i think they're not going to have a problem buying into it
1: yep yep exactly and I, I really think there's an opportunity here to like once you get people into the idea get them thinking about it then that can really help hopefully change some of the perspectives on the human side too um but even if we don't, at least we'll have people will have a positive interaction with this, which is especially in the rel- the current environment has been you know quite quite negative for a lot of people.
0: And we we touched on this a little bit earlier when you talked about the goals eventually being translation to humans that kind of thing. But how much of this is really just a goal of let's uh, have people who have dogs and keep their companions alive longer and be healthier? And how, how close are we to tangible products that can help that process?
1: Um. So. Rel- relatively soon, um, we are aiming to have our first products on the market in two to three years. Um, of course, biology is hard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's actually a much faster process. Uh, so a lot of people think that the regulatory barrier for pet pe- pet drugs is lower. That's actually not true. Um, it's you know you still interact with the FDA. There's still a really high bar for efficacy, safety. Um, the CMC packages are really hard. Uh, but just because of the 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 he's relatively speaking of doing a canine study, right? You can go straight into dogs, uh, relatively simply as long as you know the safety of your compound, um, allows us of a faster development timeline and a cheaper development timeline, which is actually more more relevant
0: here. Yeah, I think that's what most listeners who have companion animals at home think about because you know, on the farm you don't grow beef for 16 years, you know, or whatever, you know, its lifespans are relatively shorter. So we don't worry about these kinds of things in a farm context, which is where most animals are raised. So thinking about this in terms of companion animals and then potentially translating to humans, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. Do you think that this would be something that would be sold as kind of an over-the-counter supplement, or is this something that a veterinarian would say, well, you've got a, uh, Great Dane, and they're more prone to this particular disorder. So we would advise this prescribing this drug because it may seem to help with that. Well, what do you think?
1: It's, we're going for prescription. So all, all our products, if they become on market, are gonna be FDA approved prescription drugs.
0: So if, if people wanted to learn more about this, where would they look?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's our website, although we're actually redoing the whole thing right now. So um, it'll hopefully look a lot better. Uh, the Dog Aging Project is a really, really high quality um, academic version of this. Um, so they're doing, you know, thousands of dogs, tens of thousands of dogs in their kind of observational arm. And then they're doing a raphamycin intervention arm too. Um, so you can learn about it there. Um, and then one of the kind of, it's not aging specific, but one of the core theories of again, what are the diseases in dogs that hurt dogs, where we can, you know, help dogs but also learn about human aging is actually oncology og area this thesis has been applied and so if you look at like the one house thesis for example you can find a lot about the thinking here
0: okay that helps a lot too yeah i just think of this as a uh, pet owner a guy who you know has working animals who are also wonderful pets Um, uh, they, they play dual role and you know if it was up to me I would keep them forever. I'm sad that they're going to be gone before me. Um, <laughs> um, you know, which, which in all likelihood, um, but it's one of these things that you know we 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 feel such reverence for these animals that we have in our homes and on our in our space. And I think many people would be very excited to uh, learn more about your discoveries. Well, Celine Hollywood, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast and do me a favor as you go forward and come up with new discoveries and help dogs live longer, please put me on the top of the list to get some of the stuff. Let me know if you find anything really excellent that you wanna tell the world about because I would be happy to lend you a microphone again. So thank you very much.
1: Absolutely, thank you.
0: And as always, thank you for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Share this with a friend, share this with a dog lover. It's an optimistic way of looking at how we're going to keep our companion animals alive longer and help them live longer, healthier lives, or at least healthier lives, if not longer, right? You know, the that health span a little bit longer, and that's what's most important. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
1: You have a great podcast voice, by the way.
0: I do. I've never heard that before. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Now, today's podcast was brought to you by Collabra. Managing scientific teams can be a lot like herding cats. Independent-minded professionals are set in their ways, and change can be challenging. These are the problems that Collabra software was designed to address. Collabra's electronic laboratory notebooks incentivize positive change with solutions that make records management easy. All Collabra features, including note-taking, task management, inventory, protocols, and collaboration, are free forever for up to 10 users, so there's absolutely no risk in trying it out. Learn more at Collabra.app, that's spelled C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot
1: A-P-P.